everything you would want to see done, you know, in your relationships with others, in some way that's good, that gets lived interiorly first. I think this is a very profound idea, though, that the love of others is actually modeled on the love of self. So it's, and only you can't give what you don't have. And so if you didn't have this inwardly, then you wouldn't be able to live it with others. Welcome to another episode of The Golden Hour. I'm Rashad Bader here with Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, great to see you again. Hey, Rashad. Great to be back. Wonderful. Kevin, in our last podcast, we discussed the topic of narcissism. Its definitions, some of its characteristics, ways that we can think about it, ways that we can understand the dynamics within ourselves and, and how we can perhaps approach those dynamics or bring out the best in others, so on and so forth. We kind of concluded with this idea that in the background of this conversation, there was this topic of self-love and self-love properly understood. And so we said it would be a great opportunity for us to, to re-engage the topic in another conversation. And, and so here we are. And so I suppose what I'd like to do is start off by asking you, how would you define self-love? And do you think that's sort of the prevailing definition in pop culture and society today? Ooh. I think I would define it as willing the best for yourself. Right. So particularly for your soul. So, yeah, and that means everything that goes into willing that you be the most, have the highest integrity, the greatest dignity. So you think of a person, I say it's because it's, it doesn't mean willing the best for your body. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, you, you have to love others more than you love your own body. Because sometimes you have to sacrifice your life for the lives of others. Mm-hmm. So you, and, but you never sacrifice your soul for, the, for, for others. You know, and, and so you, you don't violate your ideals. You don't do what you think is evil for the sake of others. You know, so there is something in us that uh, is, has to be primary you know, that we are intending to to live the best way to do the best, you know, for ourselves. So I think that's the one 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 idea of this. You know, the the traditional order of charity, which was given by Saint Augustine, uh, is God, your soul, others, your body. That those are the that's the and others is first your spouse, then your children, then your parents, then your siblings. It's actually a very completely developed kind of idea and in some ways all of this comes natural to us you know, so it's just like in english when we're using adjectives there's uh, you know like a 13 fold rule or something like that that it has to go in the in this order you know and otherwise it sounds wrong to us but it's, charity is exactly the same way the love when it comes to loving other people we just kind of know that you know if you love you know the a store clerk more than you love your sibling, that would be kind of off, <laughs> you know, right. all the things being equal, unless you're married to that store clerk. So. <laughs> <laughs> or, or they're your parents or something. Or they're, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, so, so that sounds quite compelling. Um, but this distinction between sort of loving our, our souls and loving our bodies, again, this, this comes back to being able to discern meaningfully between these goods. Yeah. And, it seems to me that perhaps one of the best ways of getting to this conversation 
would be rather than trying for us to completely sort of talk about all of the goods associated with it or come up with a coherent system would be what would some of the obstacles be, right? Where are some of the common pitfalls? Let's say someone accepts the premise and says, okay, got it. Self-love is willing the best for myself, especially for my soul. You know, how do we help to start forming their, their idea of this? What would some yeah. common pitfalls be? Maybe the most general way of saying it would be turning means into ends. Mm. So all the things that we seek should be ultimately for the sake of bonds. Bonds are the highest source of meaning. So the, and that is, so bonds give us the opportunity to be loving and to sincerely seek the good of the other, to forget about oneself entirely, to totally give yourself generously. All of that, the, these kind of highest, the highest ideals deal in fact with bonds. In the bond then, as we're trying to be loving towards others, uh, you can only love them really in some way as, as you love yourself. So you can't really be patient with another person with whom you have a very deep bond, unless you're inwardly patient with yourself. Yeah, so in, and you, you could go through every ideal that you have to inwardly be able to live these qualities. You can, in people who are strangers, more easily kind of put on a good front. But you'll find that the people with whom you, you share the deepest bonds, they will get more the unfiltered you so you need to more authentically be practicing all of these ideals interiorly. And as you do that, that's the pattern then for how you can practice them also with the other person. So if you're compassionate towards your own past, your own failings, you know, and you try to be understanding so that they can bring out the best in you, then you can also be compassionate with other people's past and their failings so that everything can bring out the best in them. Everything you would want to see, uh, done, you know, in your relationships with others, in some way that's good, that gets lived interiorly first. I think this is a very profound idea though, that the love of others is actually modeled on the love of self. So it's in only, you can't give what you don't have. And so if you didn't have this inwardly, then you wouldn't be able to live it with others. This is especially again, true for intimate bonds because they get the unfiltered you. So that's that's a that's a very profound point. It also makes sense, right? That by investing in ourselves, trying to to grow within ourselves, that we would then be more available or loving or or generous or what sincere is is a good one with with others. However, you mentioned one example, patience. That's a tough one. How does one become more patient with themselves in order to become more patient? with others. How, how does, how do we even go about this sort of internal work? So, yeah, a saying that I, uh, I, I like, uh, is that impatience is like wine and patience drinks it. So that is that when you feel the most impatience within yourself, patience doesn't mean having no impatience. It means fully welcoming it drinking it in, letting it be there. Like you're saying to it, you're, it's good that you're here. Somehow your arrival makes sense and there's nothing wrong with you. 
And that's the sense that we have everything in us, our whole, our whole act of being, everything, in some sense, it makes sense and nothing is in itself evil. It can be understood. It can be welcomed. Now, that doesn't mean we give in to everything. No, because that would be misguided. You know, the, our impatience is not a great counselor for what to do in life or how to act in a situation. Just like if you're angry, you know, it's like anger is not a good counselor for how to respond to someone you're dealing with. You know, so, but you can be in this inwardly uh, accepting of the fact that the anger is there. So you live meekness inwardly, and then you can live it outwardly. But if inwardly you're already like losing patience with your own getting angry or impatient, then you're much more likely to act on it. So, yeah, this is really what I'm saying here is that the right love of self is what allows us to welcome and experience all of our emotions as they arrive. And the kind of magic that that performs is that it then stops us from having these unwilling responses to our own emotions, which actually amplify everything. So, you know, if someone um, has a fear of heights and they come to me for help with it, it's never simply that they just have fear of heights. Really, is that they're afraid of the fear being triggered. They're ashamed of it being triggered. They, you know, they feel bad about themselves for it being triggered. They're sad about it. There's all these other emotions that come. Well, the right kind of compassion will just lead them to have acceptance for all of that. And that paradoxically makes them more able to go to high places. And when it shows up, they're okay with it showing up. And then it goes away. So this, I think this is how. We, if we love ourselves in the right way, we can be understanding and we can feel whatever our painful emotions might be. And that actually gives us room then to shape them. Yeah. As you were speaking, the, the one word that jumped out to me seemed to be acceptance. Mm -hmm. But then yeah. even closely related to that is this, this idea that really one of the greatest obstacles to our growth is an unwillingness and, and this is maybe a little bit of a challenging word, but an unwillingness to suffer. Mm -hmm. And so by, by accepting these emotions and by being willing to go through them, um, I think perhaps that's what you're saying is that's how we start to cultivate that sort of internal patience. And that lifts up maybe even all the other ideals as well. I think that's, that's right. And it allows us to then focus more on reality where we can be committed to bringing our ideals more and more into reality. So the purpose of acceptance is to free us to make a commitment of ourselves. So now an, an example of this that I often use uh, is think of like the, the target symbol. Okay, this might sound a little bit abstract, but bear with me for a moment. It's in the red dot in the middle, okay? And then you have a white rim around it and then you have another red rim around that. You can understand all of psychology in that just this one image. The middle dot is reality. The white rim around it are your prime, your emotions about reality. And then the red rim around that are your emotions about your emotions. Mm. What acceptance does is it free, it's what deals with that outer rim. So that you can just, whatever your, these responses you're having, feeling shame about feeling 
anxious, being anxious about being anxious, all these things that amplify the emotions and it leave, lead people to get off track in life and very complicated inside. All of that is radically simplified by acceptance of whatever that the other emotions might be. So uh, Thomas Aquinas said, all of that is the work of patience. So it's basically dealing with the difficulties that arise from within our soul. But then reality, that's where commitment has to be brought in, where your ideals have to be brought in, where you can affect real change by improving your bonds, by improving your work, improving your life. There's real stuff to be done in that middle. And that's actually where the important work happens. So, and that's where you have to be committed to living your highest ideals. So the kind of therapy that I practice is called acceptance and commitment therapy. Acceptance is mostly patience and commitment is mostly love. How do you actually have love transform the reality of your life? Primarily, that means building stronger bonds. Well, when we talk about ideals, you had mentioned we have to live our ideals in reality. Historically, we've spoken about ideals and we've said that role models give us good images of ideals. When we talk about this internal work, do we need to have an image of what that internal work looks like? So for example, with something like compassion or with patience, do we need to have been shown that compassion and patience in order to then manifest it? How do we understand uh, that image in that light? I think it, it does help a great deal when you're dealing with compassion to be thinking of a time when others in your life have been compassionate. Or think of a loved one who, you know, it, it could be someone who's not around anymore, but if they could be around, how would they be towards you? So certainly we all have images in our mind of what compassion looks like. So you might, some people who had very traumatic childhoods, you know, they may need to be thinking of it in a different way. Someone they've never met. The, 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 that there's, there's, there's like the noble stranger that enters their life and is able to show them this. So I think it does help to see it envisioned in some way, you know, but that's also, I think what faith gives people are the kind of images of all these, these qualities. And so, and, and being able to, so you can also then people can go and turn towards their faith to see, you know, like what does, what images does my faith provide me with of what compassion, of what love, of what forgiveness looks like so that I could experience it in that context. So I think that in that way, in general, faith helps people to stabilize their reframes and to ground them in something, a tradition that's deeper. You know, and so that, and that brings us them together then with other people in the community who share that same faith. So I would say that in the most general way, uh, everyone does have some access to, to these role models if they're willing to kind of look around a bit in their life. Right. When it comes to doing this sort of internal work, cultivating patience within oneself, forgiveness, attentiveness, mm -hmm. whatever it may be, how do you usually go about either, either mentoring or um, prompting uh, perhaps patients in approaching that? Is this something that they're doing during times of silence early on in the day? Is this something that you help them to strategize to do in the course of the day? Is it a mix of both? 
what is the framework that you use when going about mm -hmm. doing this? When I'm working with people one-on-one, -on -one, I always prefer to have the experience of the emotion happen in the session so that when it shows up, we can get a sense of how do they react to it. So I use the example you know, of, it's like if that emotion were coming in here behind, in this door behind me, you know, and I were to turn to it, would I be saying something irritated? You know, it shows I'm irritated or disgusted by it or demeaning it or making fun of it for showing up. How would I normally respond to the emotion when it enters? And what would it be to change the inner tone of voice to how I address it? And people can, it's good that they learn to practice that. They don't have to do it in a therapy session. They can do it uh, anytime the emotion shows up. But in a strange way, we can live ideals inwardly in the tone of voice we use. Hmm. What would it mean to warmly greet this anxiety that shows up or this embarrassment or shame or the sadness? How could you greet it in a way that is saying, it's good that you're here? I thought you would show up. This makes sense. Come on in. I'm making room for you. So having people be thinking of how they would greet this in a compassionate way, how would you treat it if it was like, you know, it might be the thing in your life that you really hate the most, but what would it be like to relax your dislike of it and to find a way of, of regarding it in a new, with a new image? How would you treat it the way you wanted to be treated? You know, would it, think, you know, if you're having someone imagine what it's like to be, you know, for someone in their love that they love or respect to be compassionate towards them, well, now how would they be compassionate towards this emotion that shows up? So you can do various amounts of imaginal work, but it really anyone can practice this on their own. You know, just to be thinking of a time recently when their emotion, the emotion that they most dislike about themselves when they feel it, when it shows up, what do they do with it? Are they able to make room for it and welcome it? Would they, if they're treating it like a child, how would they be? Do, would they be scolding it? Or would they be encouraging it, caressing it? So I think this does mean then that people are actually more willing to let it be there. And it has big real world consequences. So the, the way you interiorly live acceptance does set you free then to really be shaping your behavior in the, in the real world solely by your ideals so that you're no longer being, you know, I think like the wrong kind just like with a child, the wrong thing to do with a child is just to be satisfying all its desires. But that's not going to help it to grow. <laughs> that's not going to make it the kind of person you, that you'd want it to be. It's not going to make it fulfilled. You know, and so there's always this tension between helping people live according to ideals and honoring the people around them and building bonds, which is actually deeply fulfilling versus cheap satisfaction, just getting what you want when you want it. And we have to learn to sacrifice satisfaction for fulfillment, you know, to sacrifice these comforts for ideals and people in our life, things that, things that matter more. So I think that we want to be like learning how to uh, not get into the trap of like just satisfying our emotions by giving into them, which is really how you make them kind of show up and go away. It's like, you know, it's like a kid. You just give it what it, what it you know, give it the iPad and then you don't have to let, you know, deal anymore with the interruptions. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not saying that like that's, you know, 
you can never do that, but but at least if that's your main way of handling the child, you're gonna, you know, the child is gonna develop attentional issues <laughs> and be spoiled because. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you this: um, you spoke earlier in an earlier episode, in our earlier episode about narcissism, with a distinction between guilt and shame, right? Mm-hmm how would someone learn to, are these both sort of equal emotions that we can learn to accept whether it was shame about something that challenged an image or guilt about something we objectively did wrong mm-hmm. how do we learn how to accept that emotion even if is that even the right way of thinking about it yeah i think it is a great i think that um shame again is about the image you know and and so it uh you know, philosophers have said that there is an, you know, an access of, you know, shame to glory, you know, and that's kind of what occupies the self-image and that really the whole of the moral life is to leave that axis and to get onto the axis of guilt to merit. So the, I think that's, that's a very wise approach, you know, of like, what is the most noble way of acting? I think we've kind of lost the concept of merit, you know, or is dignity of something that you are acting to, like in a way that to be earned, you know, that we have to like, our dignity calls us to act in the best way possible. And it kind of goes against our dignity to act in lower ways. You know, so dignity is like an upward call that we get to, to act according you know, to, 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 to our best possibilities. Uh, so that's the whole idea then of like, you know, and so anytime we can see that we've done something actually wrong, it's an opportunity then to put it right. And so again, the great part of being part of the problem is you're part of the solution. The great part about guilt is that it can be dealt with. The only guilt that can't be dealt with is that which which is not acknowledged. All acknowledged guilt already has the seed of its own cure in it. So I'm not really worried about guilt. Now people can get, you know, they can have a phobia of it, you know, that's what scrupulosity is. People do have a phobia of guilt and then they see it everywhere and they're constantly experiencing it. That's a different topic that, you know, we can, we can go more into, but I think most people, um, it's actually a healthier stage for them to be concerned about guilt because it's more about real behaviors and it's more about real growth and the real self versus shame, which is about your self image and how you're appearing in front of others. You only experience shame for public things. You know, uh, but guilt is for public or private things. It's like, you know, because guilt is about reality and shame, again, is about the image. I don't know if I answered your question, but it's, I think those are interesting ideas to be cycling around, you know, and, and to see that if you can, you know, if, if one of the problems with the narcissist is that they were raised without empathy, so then they never got this kind of unconditional acceptance from, from one of their, you know, their caregivers. And then they didn't learn to have an attitude of acceptance for what they feel, you know. And that's why then they learn to form a kind of protective image of themselves. That they, uh, if they can protect that, then they're okay. But if the image then gets violated, then they feel the overwhelming shame. So somehow, reversing it means coming to love yourself truly, you know, which is coming to be fully accepting of the emotions that show up, to welcome them, to let them be there, to welcome them in the way you wish you would have been welcomed as a child. So there are like different therapies. I haven't gotten into them that do inner child work and stuff, but I think this is what they're all getting at. 
you know, which is how is it to change your relationship to your emotions themselves, you know, so that they no longer um, hold you back and complicate your life. Wow. Well, Kevin, we're running low on time. Was there anything else that you wanted to sort of conclude with? Well, um, maybe, you know, just to go back to what we talked about in the narcissism one, but your self-love is going to be on the right track if it brings out the best in you and lets you be the best version of yourself to others. I think that's ultimately what, you know, that's what, uh, that's what selfishness can't do. You know, that's what, if we just think of self-satisfaction. So there is a right kind of self-love and, and it means accepting ourselves so that then we can actually give ourselves to, to those who are closest to us. Perfect. Well, Kevin, thank you so much. We'll be back and maybe we can do another episode on this, this, uh, sort of parallel system of shame and glory and then guilt and merit. That sounds very interesting. <laughs> There's a lot in there. So thanks so much, Kevin. We'll talk to you soon. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to check out optimwork.com for a set of online tools to help you engage challenge in your life. See you next week.